Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is former chief economist at TD Bank, Don Drummond. Don unpacks the latest Bank of Canada rate decision, its impact for future federal policy decisions, and the trajectory of the Canadian dollar. Don says that a prolonged period of low interest rates has created a culture of indebtedness, which can be seen in lines of credit, business loans, and mortgage holders. He explains to host Pamela Ritchie that investors should be looking at how much higher than normal the new rates are. Turning to the performance of the Canadian dollar, Don says that Canada's approximate 20% productivity deficiency means that the Canadian dollar should be priced at a 20% discount, but explains that deviations may occur depending on commodity prices. This podcast was recorded on July 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Everyone's seen what happened with the the rate decision by now. Do you think that the central bank here in Canada has fixed the mortgage problem? Well, that's not their intent, but yes, by having super low interest rates for so long, we built a culture of indebtedness. And we saw that with mortgage holders, we saw it with lines of credit, we saw it with business loans, we saw it with governments, and it was just borrow, 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 and everybody drank that Kool-Aid that everything's different and rates aren't going to go up, so there's no problem borrowing. I I think this was like a two by four, if not more like a two by ten across the head. That doesn't always happen. Interest rates couldn't go up, and maybe you don't want to borrow so much on an ongoing basis, and Maybe you've already borrowed whatever you can do. You want to pay down some of the principal. So I think a mindset got created by the super low interest rates. And I think that mindset is starting to shift. Is this is this fit in the bucket of normalization? We were talking about it in a, in a variety of different ways, actually. You know, I, we keep still seeing the reference how much they raise interest rates from the almost zero. I think what we should be focusing on, how much higher than a so-called neutral interest rate level are they? What do you think? If inflation does get down to 2%, that Bank of Canada policy rate will probably be around 2, 2.5, maybe 3%. So, yes, we are above that, but it's it's not like we're 5 percentage points above a kind of normal rate. And look at the long-term bond yields. For a long time, they were under 3% right across the board. They've kind of crept to some of them above 3%, but those are still incredibly low. They're negative territory on a on an, a real basis after inflation. So you imagine if even if you're buying a 10-year uh, Government of Canada bond, you're still not making anything on real in real term. That probably is not even full normalization of interest rates. So, I mean... Let's discuss the lag. So Bank of Canada was on pause for for months. It also moved earlier than the rest of the pack. So I don't know to what extent that that fits with the story. But this discussion of lags, of things not quite biting yet, but at the same time still seeing the inflation story circling, it's obviously 
led the Bank of Canada to make this move further higher. What is the discussion of lags at this point? What what are we still waiting for? Well, when we began this series, I threw out two ideas. Lags was one of them, and the second one was human behavior. The lags being before we see the effect on inflation from the Bank of Canada, we got to wait about 18 to 24 months. And so the tendency is you keep raising the rate, raising rates, raising rates, so you don't see the impact. So you don't know when to stop. And you won't know the correct answer for a year and a half or two. And the second one was human behavior. The Bank of Canada, quite rightly, has been around, as long as other central banks, has been roundly accused of keeping interest rates too low for too long. Well, in life, when you're accused of one thing, you tend to err on the other side. The worst thing is to be accused of the same error again. Put those two together, and I've always thought the bank account will raise interest rates more than people thought, and they'll keep them higher for longer than people have thought. So those two things are looking pretty good. I mean, most people thought they would probably peak out around 4%. They're up to 5%. You'll remember, even the last time we were doing this session, there was still a lot of people who were expecting that interest rate cuts would start before the end of this year. Well, that kind of thinking has almost disappeared. But I think that just lines up with the reality of lags. This this is not an easy policy instrument to navigate. It's, it's that cliche about the tanker. It takes so long to turn it around, and you're not quite sure how hard to hit the steering wheel at any time because you don't see the effects for so long. So when you say, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but just for clarity's sake, so it takes, say, 18 months to a couple of years to feel the effects. That's from when they start moving or from when we sort of sit at what we think might be a peak or at least. Well, it's the effect from each interest rate increase. Yeah. But relative to your point, the first 200 basis points just lessened the amount of monetary stimulus. Until we got to that neutral interest rate, they weren't even starting to bite. So, you know, they went from one quarter percent to two percent. That's not restricting inflation at all. And that's the other thing a lot of people didn't understand. I think I see the flip side that people think, well, we've had some weaker GDP numbers. Maybe the economy is only growing one and a half to two percent. That is Canada's potential growth rate. That is not creating a slack in the economy. If we want to create slack in the economy, we have to have a growth rate below one and a half percent. We haven't really seen that yet. That's scary, no? Well, I think it is scary how low our long-term growth prospects are. We're paying more attention to the problem. I don't think we're paying too much attention to the solution. But, you know, this international report got a lot of circulation that, our per capita growth prospects are about the worst of any developed country around the world. Our productivity output per hour work has been below 1% since 2000. That's again, one of the worst of the developed countries. So we will probably have a reasonable top line number, but that's driven by having 500,000 new immigrants per year. That does not translate into much of an increase in GDP per capita. Do you think that's too big a bet on the immigration side of things? I think the immigration thing can work out if two things are lined up, and I don't see either of them being lined up. We have a better track record of economic social integration, and we haven't been doing very well on that. We could do a lot better on that. And secondly, it lined up with our housing policy. We're not creating 500,000 housing units for even if they're coming in families. You know, we're just building over 200,000. We've already got a shortage, and the shortage is just going to get worse. And it's like, that's the two ships passing in the night. How can two policies be so unreconciled? 
part of the answer, of course, is the federal government has a fairly minor role in the housing. That's more provincial and municipal. They're not the ones setting the immigration numbers. Interesting. Well, what did you think out of what the premiers were saying yesterday, some of their messaging? They're talking about infrastructure. They're talking about housing. Well, they're talking the right game. But we have, other than a few examples, Edmonton being an example, we're not seeing the strong moves on density. I, I, I get it. Uh, anybody who's been to cities that have very high population density, I get how you might want to live that. But if you're going to have cities with 500, 5 million people plus, they're going to be t packed in pretty tight. Or, or you're just going to take the entire geography of the whole country, which we don't want to have that kind of sprawl. So you can't have both of them. We, we can't have a population that concentrated in big urban centers and have that low a density rate. And we have to get over that. But it's all any time a higher density. Oh, we don't want that in our neighborhood. Well, it's got to go somewhere. Let's take a look at, at the currency story just briefly. I mean, we, we've seen some trends in the U.S. dollar coming lower over a course of months. Um, every time there's a an interest rate hike, that, that is a, a different story. But here we've got Canada looking at the Canadian dollar. We've got much higher interest rates, obviously, than we did a while ago. What do you think of the trajectory for the Canadian dollar, taking into account the trajectory for the U.S. dollar? In full disclosure, no models of our exchange rate have ever been terribly successful. I go back to this the simplest notion of um, what it would be productivity adjusted. And we have about a 20% productivity deficiency relative to the U.S. So everything else equal at a famous economist, our dollar should be at about a 20% discount. And on average, it has kind of been there. That There's a deviation depending on what's happened to commodity prices. Uh, right at the moment, commodity prices are not particularly high, nor are they particularly low. We're a bit more than that 20% discount. I'm not quite sure what would explain that bit of a difference. But grosso modo, that's where we'd be. You know, that time when we went to having a more valuable currency, of course, we had just unbelievably strong commodity prices, and they've come off those type of highs. So, yeah, I, I, I don't expect to see huge changes. We'll be, you know, as... as People get a perception maybe the Federal Reserve Board and the Bank of Canada might do something different. That tends to be the primary explanation. That might explain a percent or two here and there, but ultimately it really comes back to it's a purchasing power parity concept. And yep. our our level of productivity is lower than the United States. Our unit labor costs are hence higher than them. And that explains why we have a, a dollar that's less valuable than the U.S. Does the Bank of Canada rate decision align with our federal government policy decisions? They seem to be going in different directions. The federal government was spending like there was no tomorrow, at least no tomorrow that involved the debt repayback. And in fact, the Minister of Finance made many statements that it would be foolish not to spend wildly because interest rates were lower and always going to stay low. Well, the second part of that now is clearly not true. They have been increasing spending at a lower rate but they've still got a lot. And in fact, it's kind of hilarious when you look at the last federal budget because their definition of fiscal restraint is we're not spending as much as we wanted to spend. Right. Well, yeah. that, that's, that's like I really wanted to spend $2 million in a house, but I got a bargain because we only spent $1 million. Well, that's only a bargain because you had $2 million in your mind. They're still increasing spending a lot. So as we've had in many cases uh, over the last 20 years, we have fiscal policy not supporting monetary policy. We would actually be seeing a restraint 
on the federal and provincial fiscal sides if we wanted to be supportive of monetary. All we can say is the fiscal policy is not as offensive as it was two years, two and three years ago, but it's still not being supportive of the monetary cause. Fascinating. Just going back to sort of the the discussion of productivity, and we're asking everyone this question, but the idea that AI could help with that. I mean, I think that's what every company is hoping. I think that's, I'd like to ask you how you think the government might see the productivity side of things change with, with the introduction of AI in careful and measured ways. Well, I think it will help, but I'm a bit skeptical because throughout this whole period, we've been stuck at less than one productivity. We've had a phenomenal range of technological improvements, and yet that bottom line hasn't really changed. So will this change it as well? You know, if we're talking about labor productivity, the key, key culprit is underinvestment of business machinery and equipment. It's hardly been growing at all. We have huge gaps in machinery equipment available per worker relative to the United States and other countries. And it's not easy to pinpoint why that is. Corporate profits have been reasonable. The, there's a wherewithal to do it. Companies used to always say, well, we wanted accelerated depreciation. Well, you know what? They got accelerated depreciation. And that didn't free up the a gap as well. I uh, One of the biggest gaps is, is in IT and particularly in software. We, I benefited greatly when I was at TD Bank because the former chair of IBM Canada was the chair of the TD Bank. And I was talking to him about this underinvestment in IT in Canada. And he said, the reality is way worse than the numbers I was citing because he said, when we sell a piece of computer equipment in Canada is used in less sophisticated ways than the same piece of equipment in the United States. It might be used to exaggerate it. We're processing in Canada as opposed to inventory management in the United States. It's not as extreme as that, but that sort of delivers the point. And again, we have to ask the question, why is that the case? I remember Roger Martin, when he was a dean of the Rotman School of Management, said it's because we had fewer business students. But actually, that, that gap is closed. I, over 20% of all the university students in Canada now are in business school. So we, we seem to have a ready supply of that. So I don't think that explains it. There's some great articles that you've been writing over the last, I don't know, several months. And I just wanted to bring the healthcare discussion into this discussion. It's a big part of the provincial budget. It's a massive part of the provincial budgets. Ongoing questions. There aren't enough primary caregivers. Give, give us a little sense of, of the type of policy questions you've been trying to raise. If I were a politician, there's many good reasons why I'm not. There would be two things I, I would think I would feel an enormous pressure about. And the first would be this roughly six and a half million Canadians who are not registered with a primary caregiver. And it's the same thing in life. You can never appreciate something until you've had that own experience. A family physician we had for over three decades retired. I could not get registered in a city of Ottawa with a million people. I didn't even succeed in getting on waitlist. That retiring doctor actually saved me by coming back and and giving me a referral to a clinic 45 minutes outside of Ottawa. So I'm I'm grateful of that. But I I I and I've not. Most people have more difficulty than, than I had, but I, I get that difficult. That's not acceptable. And that's going to get worse. The number of doctors is not even keeping pace with the population. And, and the second one is this, this uh, doubling of the 75 plus age cohort over the next 20 years. We 
they don't want to go to long-term care institutions. And at any rate, we don't have enough beds in them for them. And the provincial plans will barely be enough to replace the ones that are coming out of service. Those uh, four people in a room with a sheet between them, those are going or are already gone. Basically, we're just talking about replacing them. We, we don't have enough. What they want is home care or community-based living, and we're not providing that. We don't have plans to provide that. And if we did, we don't have enough personal support workers. So probably the most serious shortage we have of, of personnel in the healthcare space is not even doctors or perhaps not even the nurses. It, it is the personal support workers. And it's all part of a tight circle. One of the reasons why nurses are so overworked and why we think there's short supply is because a lot of the things they could get personal support workers to help them with have to be done by the nurses themselves because there's no personal support worker to help them. So if we want to put scopes and practice in full extent, which we should, we don't have the range of personnel to do it. And even when we do hire personal support workers, about 40% of them leave the field within the first year because the conditions of work are not attractive. So we got some, we got big problems and, you know, we, we think we got a problem today. We do have a problem today, but everything points to the problem is getting worse. And yet I don't see the political obsession with addressing it. And we didn't see that as a powerful theme at this Council of the Federation, the meeting of the premiers that just ended. Well, they did talk about doctors, but as you say, it wasn't, there was nothing near obsession that I saw, but in any case. Okay, a couple of other questions rolling in here. We might come back to healthcare in just a second. Your thoughts, John, on a central bank digital currency. This is being discussed more and more and more. To what extent do you think it's, you know, a foregone conclusion? And then I guess there's a timing question there. But first of all, the foregone conclusion. Yeah, yeah we will have a digital currency. I I don't see that as a pressing uh, priority at the moment. Uh, I think all eyes have to be on getting us back to the 2% inflation. Yeah, work on that at the side of their desk. It'll come at some point, but I don't see that being a main uh, obsession for the bank or anybody else right at the moment. So, so you think getting back to 2% is possible? I, you know, in the oh, U.S., well, discussions of sort of a 3% being okay. What do you think? I am as about as close to 100% certain as you can get. We will get back to 2% inflation. The only question on my mind is at what cost? It's, it's, again, it's like anything else in life. If, if I give a person a single goal and everything in their life depends on achieving that goal, they will probably achieve that goal. The question is at what sacrifice do they do it? And, and most, most people don't just have one goal in life, but this is a unique situation. They got one goal. You're told to get to 2% inflation and they will do whatever is required to get there. Now, to their credit, they will try to minimize the cost, but that is not their mandate. They will do that because they're good people. Obviously, they don't take any pleasure in hurting people and putting people out of work, but they, we, we will get there. And uh, the longer it takes, the more the psychology of higher inflation will get ingrained. So they got to go there reasonably quickly. Now, they said in the last forecast, now they pushed it way out to 2025 before we get there. Do you think that movement in the creation of a BRICS currency could affect the U.S. dollar or the Canadian dollar? No, I don't really think so. In, I, I can certainly see in 20, 30 years, we won't see as much dominance of the U.S. currency. But you know what? 20 years ago, people thought by 2023, we wouldn't see that either. And, you know, you remember in the early 2000s, the, the BRICS and the Celtic Tiger and all that were all the rage and they were going to be taking over the world economy. And 
most many of those economies have floundered uh, since then. And even the ones that have had seemingly good nominal growth rates per capita haven't done that well. Just going back to sort of the, well, the real estate more broadly, the story, uh, the commercial real estate discussion seems to be an area where there will be weakness. Long-term leases will at some point come up for renewal. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like there's a, a lot of worry about that. I'm sort of curious whether you think there should be or, or if, in fact, it will be kind of moderated because people have time to get used to the fact that these leases come off in a longer time horizon. I think it's a great worry. We've seen uh, you know, retail spending has remained pretty firm, but not through bricks and mortar. I, I had the example of that just the other day. Uh, one of my daughters wanted to buy a fairly common, inexpensive item. And I won't name the, com- the company, but I looked on their website and there was 20 of them. Guess how many of them were available in the store out of 20? Zero would be a good answer. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I elicited a comment for me, why would anybody ever bother to go into a store anymore? That's going to be a real problem. And look at all the space. Just one store in Nordstrom is leaving gigantic stores and leaving that space. Well, that'll be interesting. I mean, they were smart. I mean, the, the building owners realized they're never going to find somebody taking that massive amount of space as a single occupant. They're going to break it up. It's going to be more boutique and something where there actually might be an advantage to shopper going there. So we'll see how smart people could be, but I would worry about that an an awful lot. Just the the variety of the availability of stuff online compared to what's available in the stores really makes me worry about the viability of the bricks and mortar stores going forward. And you really have to be something where you're offering a service that you couldn't get. You know, you're, you're a bike shop and you're doing bike repairs. Well, that's pretty hard to do online. That that sort of thing will, will do well. But the others, not so sure. You know, in, in that, you haven't even mentioned the office story, which which is another piece of the commercial real estate story. I don't see a day where we're going to go back to needing as much office space as we had before. I, I think that will combine... You know, the example that always struck me is very strange, unknown to me until the day I sat in my, the first day I sat in my office at TD, I was also responsible for the TD library. Nobody mentioned that <laughs> when they hired me, not that it would have made any difference when I was there, but what, what the heck, <laughs> I have the TD library, 3,000 square feet of the most expensive real estate in the country. And it had monthly Bank of Canada reports and annual financial statements from companies, Not, nothing that we needed physically. And I just thought to myself, why in the world is this sitting here in the most valuable real estate? And and I think that thought process has occurred to a lot of those companies, even if they, in that case, they really didn't need that space. But if you did need that space, you don't need it right down at King and Bay Street or the most expensive place. And it, it, there's nothing like, pricing something and so what what happened in that particular case is they uh, gave us a budget for our, our our space we were taking and then cut it and i said well if you do that then i'm going to downsize and potentially get rid of the library and i said yeah don that's the way it's supposed to work but see we never had that before so there's there's an awful lot of commercial space just look at the government of canada space you know, if we're going to go to a hybrid that they can easily share offices, they're not going to need half the space they've got. And the Ontario government and the like are going to be the same thing. Can, Pretty, they, turn, and, can they turn it into housing? Which well, is where I was this you know, 
Well, a number of them have looked at that, and the retrofits seem to be a, a lot. A lot of these buildings are getting pretty long in the tooth to start off with, but the retrofit costs are horrendously high. And the ones that I've seen where they've done the case studies, it seemed to be simpler to uh, tear the thing down and start over again. So the the land space could be turned in there. But you also have to keep in mind that one of the attraction people living downtown is that they were a short walk from work. But if they're not walking to work, that kind of kind of touches the attraction. So maybe you consider with the commercial space and the shopping center more of a boutique kind of thing that's actually appeal to people and that can create a nucleus where people want to live in those neighborhoods but a very different model of living yeah yeah it's sort of got these the malls become sort of mini cities and yeah you see you see articles about that so what is your take ultimately on recession it sounded like it's probably not the biggest worry in your mind to the central bankers but you know what do you think the risk of a recession is in the next let's say year i think the chances are fairly significant and I'm including that the possibility that the 5% isn't the end of it from the Bank of Canada. We don't know. They were deliberately very coy about that. It's a very hard thing to pull off to get the convincing evidence that inflation's firmly on its track of 2% without dipping into recession territory. I don't think it will be terribly deep and terribly prolonged. And of course, they do have one weapon to address that. If we're getting into recession, they can and likely would drop interest rates. And that will bring it back. But, you know, the, coming back to the other part, we have to keep in mind for that large percentage of mortgage holders that have variable interest rates, many, if not most of them, have not yet faced a payment increase. Uh, they should be calculating it mentally and figuring that in their budgets. I have a worry that many probably haven't done that. So it's we, and in some sense, we haven't caught up to the five percent in terms of the interest payment obligations of people. What was your first mortgage interest rate? That was in January 1982, uh, 17%. And just to make it even more foolish on my part, I locked it in at 4%. And it's one of those things where something changes, think people are, are think it would be permanent. And there was a thought at that time that we've moved up to permanently higher interest rates, not just as a short term. The One of many, many examples of former Prime Minister and Finance Minister Paul Martin is much smarter than me. At the exact same time, he borrowed the money to buy Canada's steamships from Power Corporation. The whole thing was based on a bet that interest rates would have within 12 months or he was going to be broke. And I made the bet that interest rates were going to stay up and he made the bet they were going to go down. His was a better bet than mine. <laughs> he still has Canada's steamships. Uh, although in some ways there, there was a silver lining to having your first mortgage really high because we paid back the principal really quickly. And that in, that instilled a distaste for debt on my part and uh, instilled an attitude of uh, paying back. One cent came in, one cent went to the principal, and we sacrificed a lot to do that. So we didn't actually end up paying all that much interest because we were able to get rid of the thing. Yeah, people have got well, the mortgage crazy. rates under 2%. They, they don't have that incentive to pay down the principal. Yeah. So that's the question. Does the central bank, did it fix the mortgage problem? Who knows? Thank you, John Drummond, for joining us and taking us through your thoughts on where we are now in the central bank rate rising cycle. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, 
please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.